I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayat. As fish move through the water, we too move through the world in our own fluid medium. Not water, of course, but air. And like a fish out of water, without air, without our breath, we simply can't survive. So what do our bodies do with the air we breathe? Is it possible to follow a breath of air around the world? There are uh, dozens of atoms from every single one of my exhalations in every tree around the Earth. It's in the Amazon. It's in the deep south of, of Africa. Everybody's exhalations are all going into these leaves. Our, our wastes become life spread out all over the planet. We are contributing to life all over the planet. And what do you think happens after your final breath? David Suzuki asks Margaret Atwood. Nobody has really come back to tell us. And I hate to break it to you, but Dante was making it up. (laughs) Okay, fair enough. But what was the Earth like way back when oxygen didn't exist in our atmosphere? Somewhere around 2.7 billion years ago, the Earth was a very, very different place. Uh, The air wouldn't be the air as we know it now. The air would, in fact, be uh, made up of other gases like ammonia and methane. And so it would be an incredibly inhospitable place. And what can we do about the fact that we are bringing about changes in our hospitable atmosphere at a faster rate than at any time in history? In this episode of Suzuki's Survival Guide, our retrospective, which originally ran in 2010, we explore the last breath, air, atmosphere, and Atwood. When every one of us left our mother's body at birth, we needed a breath of air to inflate our lungs and then announce our arrival to the world. And from that moment on, to the last breath when we die, we need air every minute of our lives. Air is so precious to us, we can't stay alive for more than a few minutes without it. Yet as our species proliferates, we continue to pump more and more harmful emissions into that very thing that keeps us breathing. Take a deep breath. Breathe out. Breathe in. Breathe out. Such a simple and meditative sound. When I think of breathing, I really think about the lungs. And I think of the lungs much like many people think of the heart. I think of them as a pump. They pump air in and out, and they really enable you to absorb the oxygen from the air so that you can use it in your body. 
Dr. Samir Gupta is a respirologist at St. Michael's Hospital and the University of Toronto. He's going to follow a breath of air with us. When we breathe in, the air goes into the mouth and nose area and travels down what we call the airways. All of the airways ultimately lead to these small sacs called alveoli. These are tiny air sacs that make up our lungs, essentially the delivery mechanisms that transfer the air that we breathe into the blood vessels that surround them. Now to get the oxygen into the blood, it needs to be carried somehow. And that carrying molecule is hemoglobin that really make up the blood. Of course, the big muscle that is enabling the movement of all this blood throughout our bodies is the heart. Let's take a closer look. Basically what happens is it goes onto the, what we call the left side of the heart, and it goes into a, the major blood vessel that leads out to the body, which is called the aorta. The aorta, like a tree with many branches, has many, many different smaller vessels that branch off of it that feed the various different parts of the body. These smaller vessels in turn branch off into even smaller vessels until ultimately we reach the smallest vessel, which is called a capillary. These capillaries, there are networks of capillaries that really envelop each different organ and enable that oxygen to reach the different cells. Okay, so the oxygen has reached these cells, but what exactly is it doing? What the oxygen is doing is it's enabling the cells to create energy, and the byproduct of that is carbon dioxide. In order to move that carbon dioxide through and out of our bodies, those hemoglobin molecules once again play a key role. So once the carbon dioxide is released from the cells and it ends up back on the hemoglobin, those capillaries that carry these red blood cells and this hemoglobin now full of carbon dioxide again coalesce into larger blood vessels, and those in turn coalesce into even larger blood vessels until these major blood vessels return back to the heart. And they enter now what's called the right side of the heart, and from the right side of the heart, all of this blood that has now come from the body is now pumped to the lungs. So the heart is really the pump that not only pushes fresh, oxygen-rich blood to all the organs, but also pumps that so-called dirty or carbon dioxide-filled blood back to the lungs so that that exchange can take place. From deep inside our bodies to the exhalation that makes its way around the world. Tyler Volk has tracked that breath. He's a biology professor at New York University and director of the school's environmental studies program. What happens to a breath of air as it leaves our body? Okay, I'll just exhale now as I <laughs> think about this answer. This breath now starts circulating with the wind. And we know from studies of atmospheric carbon dioxide, and in particular the studies that look at the increasing levels in the northern hemisphere compared to the deep southern hemisphere, say in the South Pole, that basically all Earth's atmosphere is mixed within about a year. Hmm. And so this exhalation of mine is going to spread out into the entire atmosphere and many, many billions of molecules of, of carbon dioxide. It'll be pulled in 
by the plants uh, during photosynthesis. And so I got interested in uh, where can I find this carbon dioxide? I I became interested to try to work out the mathematics of this, knowing uh, how many CO2 molecules are in a single exhalation of ours. I wanted to know, like if I go hiking in in a woods, how far do I have to walk before I'd find one of these atoms of carbon (laughs) uh, that I exhaled? You You know, over how many, you know, thousands of leads would I have to search and it turned out I didn't have to search very far all I have to do is pick up a leaf from the ground and when I did the calculation it turns out that there are atoms of carbon huh it'll have an atom it'll have an atom it it turns out it'll have several dozen carbon atoms from an exhalation of mine that took place in a reasonable amount of time before that leaf grew (laughs) but well then it's not billions of atoms with one breath it must be billions of billions of atoms like how many zeros are there behind uh, uh, a number of atoms are uh, of molecules of carbon dioxide come out of one breath it's like is it half a billion trillion is it 10 is it uh yeah you maybe you maybe you can script it in because i don't i don't want to get this wrong okay It turns out his guess was right. Roughly half a billion trillion carbon dioxide molecules are released with every breath. There are about 50 or so in every sphere of air about a meter in diameter. So if you grabbed a sphere of the atmosphere about a meter in diameter, uh, there's about 50, there are about 50 atoms in CO2 molecules from every single exhalation that you made within a reasonable amount of time earlier, like in about the year before that time interval. That is absolutely staggering. So really, if you think about the big picture then, we must be breathing in atoms of carbon dioxide that were where the carbon was once in the bodies of dinosaurs 65 million years ago. Yeah, it's really staggering, this, this carbon cycle that everyone is reasonably concerned about, and they should be concerned because of the perturbations that humans are, are creating to the atmosphere, is also something to celebrate. It, it's, it's a wonderful thing to learn about how these atoms of carbon uh, go around and around. And I was so surprised by this result that there are uh, dozens of atoms from every single one of my exhalations in every tree around the earth that are growing in that year. It's not just the, tr- not just the leaves I'm looking at in the forest right. near me here. It's, 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 it's in the Amazon. It's in the deep south of, of Africa. Uh, it's, in every, it's in every leaf. And it's, if everybody, everybody's exhalations are all going into these leaves. Uh, th- 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 this shows the, the interconnectivity uh, and, and the fact that our, our wastes become life spread out all over the planet. We are contributing to life all over the planet. Exactly. That's a, a wonderful, wonderful way that, uh, that we can see our interconnectivity. So, you know, we now see the role that, that uh, uh, carbon plays in the, in the cycles on the planet. What, what do you feel about the, the fact that we've come to regard death as the enemies, as something to be conquered? We're evolved to try to stay alive, but we are also evolved within certain environmental niches, and as human beings, we senesce at a particular rate. And so I think that we have to celebrate as much as possible the role, active role of death in, in life on larger and larger scales, and hopefully overcome simplistic kinds of fears about death, 
really look at ourselves as just gloriously in this present moment. What a magnificent thing to be alive right now, to have understandings about how the carbon cycle works, to be able to talk with each other the way you and I are talking with each other. What, what What a magical, magical thing, and completely try to accept it and put fears of death out of my consciousness as much as possible by being in the present moment with with what we know about the interconnectivity of life and death. Tyler Volk is the Director of Environmental Studies at New York University. That intricate dance between the breath of life and the kiss of death is something that intrigues author and poet Margaret Atwood. I was so fortunate in having a chance to sit with her and just talk. The conversation wandered about, but it was fascinating to listen to a great mind at work. We started off our conversation with what comes to her mind when she focuses on her breath. If you focus on taking a breath in, like, and then exhale, what comes to your mind immediately? All right. Two things come to my mind immediately. One is something that was in the Guardian under the answers to questions section, and the question was, what happens when you die? And the answer was, you breathe in, you breathe out, you breathe in, you breathe out, you forget to breathe in again, and five minutes later, somebody else owns all your stuff. <laughs> That's the first thing that comes okay. to mind. The second thing that comes to mind is sitting with dying people, which I did again just a couple of weeks ago, and listening to the breathing, and listening to the body struggling with the breathing. And you can just feel the breath going. And then there is one final breath, and then that is, that's it. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, rem- I sat with both my parents as they were dying, and I remember my dad, and my sisters were all in the room, and the length of time between each breath yes. gets longer gets and longer. Gets longer and longer. You know, and I can remember my sisters kind of gasping, oh, wow, I thought... He was gone, mm-hmm. but then mm-hmm. there was that kind of rattling. Yes. And it always just was so moving to me to see the body still struggling to get that last breath. It's the oxygen. So, But the heart gives out is what finally happens. Like me, when you think of a breath, you realize that each breath is getting us closer to that time when we will expire, well, or, in fact. Or each breath is... A doorstopper between us in that time. Think of it that way. (laughs) Okay. So death is really the leveler. It's it's honest. He's honest. Mm -hmm. That's what all those dance of death pictures in the Middle Ages were that showed the lord, the lady, the peasant, the farmer, all, all were in the in the line of dancing. And if you remember the end of the seventh seal. That is the motif right at the end of the film. It's one of those dance of death scenes with everybody joining hands and going over the edge of the horizon. Right. Now, we live in a time, though, a remarkable time, in which death, which was once so familiar, like we, we, 
we witness death in, in children and in infants right on through, where death has really been pushed away. I think I was, I was over 40 where the, I encountered death of someone I was really close to. That's a very unusual period. I mean, death has become a stranger yep. in, in our society, and, and uh, in many ways, I guess, more, more frightening to us because it's not familiar. Well, people don't die in their homes as much anymore, uh, although they want to. And if you ask an old person what they want to do, they'll usually say, I want to die at home. Uh, so that, that, that's one thing. The other thing is, of course, a lot of, there were a lot of children who died. In fact, I have a Victorian anthology called Little Graves, and it's about dead children. Hmm. There would not be a market for that now. Number one, nobody wants to read about that, but also it's not familiar. Where in, in those days, when asked how many children you had, you would say, Seven, five living. Wow, yes. <laughs> and being old enough to remember the days before there were inoculations for uh, diphtheria and whooping cough and uh, a number of other things. I've got four dead cousins, but probably somebody alive today uh, who is maybe 20 or so doesn't. That's right. That's right. The great, you know, uh, I we were talking earlier about uh, about polio, and when I was a boy, my parents wouldn't let me go to movies or public swimming pools in the summer for fear I'd catch polio. I'm sure and, that the the Star Fresh Air Fund and children's summer camp movements came out of that situation. The idea was to get your kids out of the city and away from crowds as much as you could. But the enormous success of science and medicine and you know, of course, a lot of it was nutrition and uh, sanitation, but the enormous success in the 20th century at, at pushing death back has kind of led to an optimism that we can, in fact, conquer death. Well, you know the old saying, none of us are going to get out of this alive. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there are scientists now who really are saying in public I know that they, they are. think that we're going to be able, you know, centuries Yeah. So, add to our lives. Well, this is what Bill McKibben's book called Enough is about, which I, in fact, reviewed. And it was about this movement into which people are pouring millions of dollars uh, to prolong human life or possibly to uh, genetically engineer us so that, the, so that the part of us that is programmed to eventually, as we used to say, kick the can... <laughs> <laughs> right. So that that part will be re-engineered so that it's not there. And I don't know about you, but I think that's probably pretty terrible news if we ever succeed in doing that. Well, I look at at people now in our society, people who are, say, past retirement, 60, 65, 70, and if they survive for any number of years, it's a pretty crummy life. For some it is, ways. for some it isn't. Some people are hale and hearty till the moment they totter no, over. No, but I'm thinking more of the role that they play in society. They get mm -hmm. marginalized. We want them out of the way. They don't know how to use computers, you know, and all that stuff. And they're kind of an, an impediment. Uh, we just want them to put them in, what do they call yeah, those Yeah, there's that. But the, the other real thing is that all your friends die. And unless you've made younger friends... You really are quite isolated. You asked me to read the novel uh, Death with Interruptions by the Nobel Prize winning author Jose Saramog Saramago? Sa Sa Saramago. Saramago. Yeah. Jose Saramago. 
And it's a story of a fictional country where at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve, death no longer exists. At well, first, death has decided, to stop, has decided to stop collecting people. Because in Portuguese, uh, death is female, uh, death is a lady in this book. Yeah. So at first, all the citizens, of course, are delighted. We're not going to die. But soon enough, they realize that the, the ramifications are that those that were on the verge of death remain on the verge of death in that kind of uh, vegetative state. And uh, so some people even began begin to plan living morgues where the living dead uh, uh, for generations to come can be put and some families start smuggling they're almost dead over the border where death still is and so they can die what is it about this weird story that drew you to it oh he's a well-known writer and i've read all of his books but this is a Oh, this is in a way a somewhat prankish book for him to have written because what then happens is that death decides to put on a fleshly outfit, namely a body, and walk amongst people to see what what it is about them. You know, she's just been fulfilling her role up until this point, but she wants to see why they get up so upset about this death thing, and she does that and and falls in love with a with a human being. <laughs> Then she has to decide. Then she she responds to petitions. You know, everybody's saying, please, please come back. Uh, And she decides that she'll have to start, because so much misery is being caused, she'll have to start doing her job again. But then she realizes that this person that she's fallen in love with is on her list. And I'm not going to tell you what Uh. happens then. (laughs) Well, it's a a weird thing, this desire to put put off death, and yet as a biologist, mm. you know, what makes life possible and the ability to mm. flourish in a, in a world that is constantly changing is death. But it's only death that makes room and provides opportunity then for well, the selection and evolution. Something has to be eaten. Or? That is what we get down to. So is that something going to be a carrot? Or is it going to be an animal? Or is it going to be you? <laughs> And ultimately, it will be all of us. Uh, well, if, if we are, unless we do the, the Egyptian thing and get ourselves absolutely preserved and put in pyramids so that we will remain the same, right. although in a non-living form. <laughs> Gosh, you know, eternity is one hell of a long time. Well, there is I, no time in, in paradise, David. You don't understand the concept. Are you frozen in time? No, I'm... you're just outside of time. Ah, You're outside of time, and that's why in, in mythologies of, of all kinds and amongst the shamans, it is the dead who hold sacred knowledge because they're outside of time, and therefore they can see the past and they can also see the future. Ah. So every shamanistic journey in every single one, um, usually a hero or a magician or somebody with powers, goes to the other world, the underground, the bottom of the sea, wherever those other beings are. It goes on the behalf of the community to get something. Either it's knowledge, or it's knowledge of riches, or it's where are the animals, or it's, in the case of Orpheus, his dead sweetheart. And you bring something back to the world of the living. Because the dead have it in their possession. Uh They're outside time. Uh, things get a bit nicer with paradise. You don't have to be in the underworld. You get trees and fountains and 
other things like that, but you're still outside time. But what does that mean? And I mean, do you do you still cavort and uh, well, David? Relish? The thing about the afterlife is nobody has really come <laughs> back to tell us. And I hate to break it to you, but Dante was making it up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So we don't actually know. Uh, so all we know is human constructions that. Um, give us some various virtual models of what it might be like, and they, they haven't done particularly well at making it sound really attractive. Well, I've often thought that I wouldn't want to go to hell or, or heaven, that, that intermediate area. What's it called? Limbo. Where, limbo. Where, or purgatory. Purga- yes, yeah. where, where Socrates and all these guys are. I mean, they're that sounds of, pretty interesting. They're in a sort of pre-heaven. Oh, in the Dante. Well, they're going to make it, are they? Eventually? No, no, they're ne- they're in the waiting room, but they'll never get in. I see. Oh, uh, it's it's a place for people who whom Dante liked, but they weren't Christians, so they don't get into the main show. They get to wander around on benches and sit on that benches. Sounds and like have... an interesting place, though. Well, uh, you know what they used to say: heaven for the climate, hell for the company. <laughs> if, as a novelist, have you ever tried to put yourself into a situation of imagining that you've been told you're going to die within a week or a limited time? It's not really a question that uh, has concerned me very much because that will happen one of these days, except I might not get the warning. You know, you might just fall over, get hit by a bus or something like that. And I'm on the side of those who would say, well, I would keep cultivating my garden. My friend Paul Corrington died this past year, and he just kept doing what he was doing, although at a somewhat accelerated rate, until he finally ultimately did die. But he he didn't stop living. And In fact, that last year of his life, from what I've was read... quite incandescent. Unbelievable. And he's now written a, a biography, sorry, an autobiography about his life and about that period. And there's also a CD of his of his final songs, which are very affirmative. So yes, it's it's a hard thing to be told, and it's a hard thing to come to terms with. But such people don't think of themselves as someone who is dying; they think of themselves as someone who is still living. Right. Well, I, uh, for years now, I've been saying, I've got to retire, I've got to retire. <laughs> the university finally uh, said, you have to retire at 65. The year after I retired, they lifted that. But I, I didn't want to stay uh, any longer anyway. But every year since then, I've been saying, well, I've got to work on re- getting ready to retire. You'll never and retire, David. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, People like you don't you're, retire. You're right. I, last year, <laughs> I looked at Tara and I said... Why am I always saying that? I really feel what I'm doing is important. I enjoy it. Why would I want to retire? I mean, this is, it's, I guess we're lifers. We're stuck with this. uh, Well, what else would you do? You're not going to go play golf. Well, I would like to devote a little more time to my grandchild and live vicariously uh, to watch him. I I have a child, a grandchild who's part Haida now, and... uh, get as him as an excuse to go up. Well, that is a worthwhile thing to do and also to give him an experience of his grandfather. But that doesn't mean you're going to retire. 
I finally realized that. <laughs> Maybe that's what comes with old age. <laughs> well, one of the other things, of course, if you're a writer and you read the later works of some writers you quite admire, you think maybe it's not such a good idea to keep on. Oh, is writing, like in science, what they say is your really productive years are, after you get your degree, your, the first five to ten years are the most innovative period in science. Well, it's not quite the same with writing. It might be so you similar to poets, but novelists, uh, often their later work is quite interesting, up to a point. There is that point, one feels. And I have said to my agents, when I get to that point, you need to tell me. And she said, I won't be able to tell you because I'll be at that point myself. <laughs> <laughs> well, Margaret Atwood, it's been wonderful sharing this uh, time with you. And uh, Let me ask you this, David. Are you going to do natural burial? I mean, are you personally going to do that? Oh, I'm going to be cremated. Why is that? I don't know. I just thought that that was a simple way out. Uh, Big carbon footprint. Yeah, I know that. And I've talked to the crematoria mm -hmm. about how the hell to recover all this heat. There's got to be Oh, no, that's an idea. So they're going to set up a crematorium with heat sharing. With heat or... exchangers. Yes. And reuse that heat in yes. some way. But I love the idea of just being cast out on the wind. And my father and mother were done that way. Mm -hmm. And return back to nature because of course our atoms don't disappear we're still there yes just get redistributed what are you going to do uh well if they get approval this is the problem nobody actually wants their potato field be to be right. <laughs> and i think there's some government permits that you have to get but if if it's if it exists by that time i would certainly do the natural burial anyway i think we should put some grave goods in for future anthropologists to dig <laughs> up. Don't you think that Give would be good? Give them something to do. Yeah, and... some mysterious <laughs> items that they will try to they figure out. They can write reams of theses. Yeah. And, uh... They will try to figure out our culture. <laughs> I might get buried with a toy xylophone or something like that, and they'll think, what was this ritual item? Yeah. My toaster. I'll get buried with my toaster. <laughs> you know the you know Bill Reed, the, yeah. the Haida artist? Yeah. He, as he was getting on, he was quite stricken with Parkinson's disease, and uh, he talked about when he died, he wanted to be uh, um, have rocks mm. placed on his chest mm -hmm. and sunk into Naden Harbor, where he was born. Oh. And then uh, three or four days later, he wanted people to sink crab traps over the body <laughs> and have a feast of crabs that were taken, which I love that idea. But by the last couple of years, he stopped talking about that as a real idea. Yeah. People are going to be turning this show off right now. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. That was novelist and poet Margaret Atwood. On Ideas, you're listening to Suzuki's Survival Guide, a retrospective. This program was originally broadcast in 2010. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National, and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. Find us on the CBC Listen app and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. 
something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. I'm David Suzuki. This episode, we're looking at the air we breathe and the role it plays in sustaining life on Earth. Over two billion years ago, there was no atmosphere to keep animals like us alive. That's because there was no oxygen in it. Oxygen is a highly reactive element and must be constantly generated to stay in the atmosphere. It was plants that transformed the atmosphere into our oxygen-rich air. So my name is Curtis Suttle. I'm a professor at the University of British Columbia, a professor of botany, of earth and ocean sciences, and microbiology and immunology, and I actually sit here in the Biodiversity Research Center. Here's how he describes what the Earth was like back when air as we know it didn't exist. If you could imagine yourself uh, back on the planet before there was any oxygen, so somewhere around 2.7 billion years ago, the Earth was a very, very different place. Uh, the air wouldn't be the air as we know it now. The air would, in fact, be uh, made up of other gases like ammonia and methane. And so it would be an incredibly inhospitable place to live. Uh, somewhere around 2.7 billion years ago or something like that, there was uh, life had already been on the planet for quite a long time, maybe 800 million years, something like that. And because these organisms were able to move their genetic information around, one of them suddenly came up with uh, a process whereby they were able to produce oxygen as a function of life. And so these little organisms, which we uh, sometimes called blue-green algae, but which are also more properly called cyanobacteria. These little organisms then, as they just started making their life with this new chemical process, they uh, happened to make as a waste product, they happened to make oxygen. These little blue-green algae were the very first organisms to photosynthesize, with deadly results for the other organisms on the planet. So as the oxygen built up, it pretty much killed all the living organisms on the planet that existed to that point because they lived in an environment in which there was no oxygen and in which oxygen was extremely poisonous. It took a long, long time. It probably took about a billion years of the cyanobacteria being there before there was enough oxygen on the planet where other organisms were able to appear on the scene that actually required oxygen as part of, uh, in order to live. So, over vast periods of time, life was able to exploit what was initially poisonous, oxygen, into a life-giving source of energy for all animals on Earth. We use the oxygen in the air to burn molecules and release energy in our bodies, and in the process, create a byproduct, carbon dioxide, which we exhale. Plants absorb that carbon dioxide and with water and energy from the sun, create all the molecules necessary to build their bodies. Isn't that amazing how interdependent we are? Back to Curtis Suttle. One thing that we don't think about very much is that this bubble of, of air that the Earth kind of sits in 
is in uh, continuous equilibrium with oceans. And uh, something else that we don't think of, we think about uh, the forests, for example, being the lungs of the planet, but equally important are the oceans as lungs. So the oceans, in fact, produce about half the oxygen on the planet, and, and even to this day, about half of the oxygen on the planet is produced by these uh, by microorganisms, including these blue-green algae, which are major uh, organisms that still float around in the ocean and still produce lots and lots of oxygen. So we have the oceans and forests creating oxygen and the carbon dioxide cycling back into them. The balance is perfect. But as we are well aware, we humans have been pushing the limits of this balance since the Industrial Revolution. Our machines use oil, and they breathe out far more carbon dioxide than ever generated before, and plants can't absorb it all. So carbon dioxide is building up in the atmosphere and acts the way a blanket does on our bed, holding heat in the biosphere and creating climate change. Henry Pollock is someone who's looked at this balance through a slightly different lens. He was a member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that received the Nobel Peace Prize back in 2007. He's a professor of geophysics at the University of Michigan. His latest book is called A World Without Ice. I'd like to start by saying, you know, we're interviewing you from... Uh, Canada. And one of the things I find uh, when I go to Toronto in the middle of winter and it's still, it's quite warm out, taxi drivers get into a fight with me and say, well, if this is global warming, I want more of it. I love it. Uh, Canadians think of ice and snow as something that is a pain in the neck. And uh, I don't think that we really have a, an understanding uh, about the role that ice plays in our lives as well as for the, the entire planet. So could we start off then, what role does ice play? Ice plays an important role in a number of different ways. Uh, one, in the Arctic, which Canadians are certainly familiar with, uh, the, the Arctic sea ice uh, governs the entire climate of the Arctic. And uh, as sea ice has been diminishing in the summertime uh, over the past several decades, uh, the climate of the Arctic is changing dramatically in response to that. And one of the really new perspectives that I think Canadians will want to pay close attention to is what an ice-free Arctic Ocean uh, really means for Canada and indeed for the rest of the world. I want to get into that, but let me just say we've just that, – that we are now meeting with countries uh, in the north saying, whoa, we've got all this – ice-free time in the summers now, and look at the resources. We can put ships through the Northwest Passage. We've got diamonds and oil up there. Uh, do you think that that, uh, that kind of approach to the diminishing of ice is uh, missing some important things? Well, of course it is, because as the ice disappears, uh, the Arctic Ocean will be absorbing the summertime solar radiation and getting much, much warmer. And that simply makes it harder to freeze in the winter, and uh, it will be more vulnerable to break up earlier in the springtime. And so you're uh, pushing things towards uh, a longer and longer period of uh, ice-free conditions in the Arctic. Eventually, that spreads to the land around the Arctic and begins to uh, degrade uh, the permafrost. 
It interrupts uh, tundra travel in the wintertime. Uh, it releases greenhouse gases from the permafrost. And it leads to an acceleration of climate change in the Arctic that has uh, hardly been uh, well understood and hardly been high on the radar screens of of the Arctic countries. It's true, though, in Canada for over 20 years, the Inuit who live above the Arctic Circle have been telling us, hey, look, we can see changes going on. You may be in the south debating whether climate change is happening. It's happening in the north now. So we really have had intimations of of changes from the people who live on the land. That's, that's certainly true, and those are voices that should be heeded uh, because they're uh, right on the front lines. Uh, we can observe the Arctic from satellites, uh, but that kind of remote information doesn't have the impact of the people who actually are confronting climate change in the Arctic. Uh, the ecosystems that support the uh, seals and walrus and polar bear are changing, and the people who live right there and rely on those wildlife resources are, are noticing it right away and certainly are calling attention to it. Exactly. How, how long have the measurements been going on of the, the change in, in sea ice, and do, do we have any idea of the rate at which this change is going on? The sea ice uh, measurements have been going on actually uh, since uh, the middle of the last century uh, as R Russia and the USA were uh, doing surveys of the Arctic, uh, kind of trying to keep track of each other's submarines and, and things like that. And uh, as a byproduct of that, uh, the bathymetry of the Arctic Ocean was uh, well investigated. Uh, the thickness of the sea ice uh, above the submarines uh, was measured. And all of this was in, in a military context. But th those archives of information have been opened up now to the scientific community and so we have uh, basically uh, almost six decades of data. And what it shows is that uh, uh, up until the late 1970s, the extent of sea ice uh, was pretty stable both in the winter and in the summer. There would be some breakup and melt back in the summer, but not, not a whole lot. But uh, since the late 1970s, uh, when we began to have satellite surveillance and easy photography of the region, we've been seeing a gradual diminishment of summertime sea ice. And uh, by 2007, almost 50 percent of the uh, 1980 extent of ice uh, was gone in the summertime. In 2008, both the Northeast Passage and the Northwest Passage were open for probably the first time in human history. And just uh, last year, in 2009, uh, there was the lowest amount of thick multi-year ice uh, ever ever measured. So the changes are real and they're accelerating. Uh, they're moving faster and faster. And some people speculate that we'll have an ice-free Arctic Ocean in the summertime uh, within a decade or two. Well, these are, in geological terms, catastrophically rapid uh, changes that we're observing. We don't, the Antarctica is a m much more remote place uh, unoccupied by humans, so uh, I guess we tend to not to think much about that, but I know that geophysicists are very concerned about what's going on in Antarctica. I wonder if you could give paint us a picture of why the Antarctic ice sheet is so important and how it affects both the you know oceans and as well as the atmosphere. The Antarctic ice is the biggest repository of ice on Earth. Uh, the second biggest is Greenland. Greenland has uh, a, enough ice on it that if we're all returned to the sea, 
it would raise sea level around six or seven meters. Whoa, uh, meters. Meters. Antarctica has uh, an amount that would be on the order of between 60 and 70 meters. So those are really uh, staggering uh, amounts of ice, which if you translate into differences in sea level, uh, are, are certainly something that, that blows the mind. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, we're not, we're not predicting that we will lose all of the Antarctic ice uh, in, in the climate change regime that we're seeing now, at least not for time periods on the order of a millennium. But Greenland is uh, slowly looking destabilized, showing summertime melting over greater and greater parts of its area and melting that's climbing higher and higher onto the Greenland ice sheet. And uh, what that is is doing is that a lot of the summertime melt is finding its way down fissures in the ice straight to the base of the ice, and it is lubricating the rock surface uh, beneath the ice sheet, and the Greenland glaciers that drain the ice from uh, the interior are accelerating. We're beginning to see a sleeping giant awaken, and the western part of Antarctica is, is showing the same kind of behavior. But uh, the, whole, the whole world of ice is, uh, in fact, uh, beginning to creak and groan under uh, the climate change that Earth is experiencing. Amazing. You know, people say, oh, well, there have been periods of warming and cooling throughout history. Um, what's your response to that? Well, it, it's, you know, I'm a geologist, and so I'm well aware that there has been climate change on Earth long before there were people. Uh, but that, that is a faulty logic uh, approach to the question of what's causing climate change today. The big factor right now is the the human factor and the the changes we're making to atmospheric chemistry by uh, delivering so much new carbon dioxide, a greenhouse gas, a heat-trapping gas, into the atmosphere. We're performing a massive experiment on the only home we have, and it's... Uh People uh, ought to recognize the, the impact we are having. Can humankind exist or survive in a world without ice? I'm sure that humans will survive, but the, the stresses that will be put on human society will be profound. We're just unaccustomed to having so many people see their principal resources shifting in front of them. It's not easy to simply say, well, move to some place where there's more water because uh, someone else already lives in those places. And uh, so I, I see lots of geopolitical instability associated with water supply in this coming century. If you had to, to, to put your money on, on an approach or, or, or something that could be done to really avoid catastrophic runaway climate change, where would you, where would you focus? Where would you put your money? I would actually not bet the farm on a single technology or approach. Uh, I'm uh, much more inclined to spread my bets widely because I think we need every horse in the stable pulling along to uh, get the world to a situation where we can mitigate climate change. Uh, some of the low-hanging fruit right now, which is easy and relatively inexpensive and requires no technological breakthrough, is simply uh, stopping wasting energy. 
But I also feel that the development of alternative energy, alternatives to carbon-based energy, solar power, uh, wind power, even nuclear power, which I know some people are opposed to, but I think that uh, we, we probably need the contribution that nuclear power can make too, at least for a while. We need them all right now because the terrain is shifting so dramatically and uh, we only have a few decades to really make a dent in this problem and we we really need to use what we have and hope that technology will advance quickly enough to give us some things now that look promising but we don't have yet i guess that's the thing that uh, a lot of us feel is that we're we're recognizing the the speed and the scale of the changes that are happening but now we have so little time to really uh, do anything to avoid catastrophic runaway climate change. And yet when we witness what happened at Copenhagen, the, the shilly-shallying that's going on is, uh, is pretty depressing. I'm uh, a little more uh, optimistic about what happened in Copenhagen than, than many observers. Every nation there, and it included all of the important players and, and many others that will be uh, feeling the consequences of climate change, they all accepted the science that stands behind uh, demonstrating that climate change is, is, is occurring, it's occurring rapidly, and that humans are playing a big role in it. The science was not debated at Copenhagen. The second thing is that uh, the presence of uh, all the important players is the very first time when you had uh, that concurrence of opinion that we need to do something. And the outcome was modest. I, I usually call it as baby steps, but at least it was a start. And with a start, you can always improve it. But with no start, uh, then there's a lot of inertia that says we don't need to start. If I could ask you one question, though, as a scientist, what do you make of the fact that, you know, this whole climate gate thing and the, the fact that public belief or acceptance of climate change is real is dropping in North America? Well, I, I'm disappointed, of course, because the science is so strong that uh, the fact that, that people are either not grasping it or choose to ignore it, uh, that's always disappointing. Part of the, the problem is that there's been a, a, a very well-orchestrated uh, attempt, not just with the climate gate episode, but, but for several decades now, to raise doubt about the science, to discredit the scientists when possible, and, uh, and therefore lead to uh, delay in adapting any uh, measures of mitigation or even adaptation. And so the regrettable part about uh, the climate gate episode is that although it didn't affect the science in any way, the reports of the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, stand strong. And if anything, the scientific community has reinforced those conclusions with more recent observations. But no matter how strong the science stands, the public understanding of it has diminished. And that leads, of course, to political issues. Uh, it makes the job of uh, getting a climate treaty uh, based on national commitments uh, much more difficult. And so in a way, uh, ClimateGate has had a big impact, although not on uh, the scientific results. Thank you very much for that uh this has been a wonderful interview, uh, Professor Pollock, and I, I thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. Henry Pollock is a professor of geophysics at the University of Michigan and a contributing member of the last report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. 
The story of the atmosphere is a magnificent one. The evolution of photosynthesis was one of life's great leaps forward, transforming the atmosphere into the oxygen-rich air that animals like us depend on. That interplay between the molecules we exhale and that plants use to give us what we need is a classic example of the interdependence of life on Earth. Even though conditions on the planet have constantly changed, I mean the sun is 30% warmer now than it was when life arose 4 billion years ago. Continents have smashed into each other and pulled apart. Oceans filled and emptied. Temperature varied between ice ages and warm periods and so on. Yet life has persisted and flourished. We are an infant species, appearing perhaps 150,000 years ago, yet we have taken over the globe and are now transforming the physical, chemical and biological features of the planet on a geological scale. Where once we referred to tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, drought and fires as natural disasters or acts of God, we can't anymore because we have interposed ourselves in these events. The Gulf disaster should be a warning about how powerfully destructive we've become, but we don't know enough to correct the damage we inflict. The Gulf disaster, David Suzuki refers to, is the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. When this episode originally aired in the summer of 2010, the spill was still active. Before the damaged well was sealed that fall, an estimated 210 million gallons of oil had been spilled. For years afterwards, its effects were detected in Gulf wildlife. In 2015, the Paris Accords became the treaty that eluded negotiators six years before in Copenhagen. Paris is still the standard for the United Nations International Climate Change Targets. As for Climategate, a 2009 scandal in which hackers tried to discredit climate scientists using stolen emails, it's unclear how much damage was done to the public understanding of climate change. In a 2019 report on the 10th anniversary of Climategate, the BBC reported that discrediting efforts had shifted focus from scientists to young activists like Greta Thunberg. This episode was produced by Nikola Lukšić in collaboration with Tina Pitaway. Additional production by Holly Dressel, Pete Mori, and Yvonne Gall. Suzuki's Survival Guide was produced with help from Sean Foley. Lisa Ayuso is our web producer. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Our senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.